Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Man, you know the sun's still shining, right? You know it's still there, right? You know Jesus is still on the throne, right? Man, y'all just going to have to forgive me for a moment because that last song just jacked me all up. Just thinking about that day when we'll see him face to face and just thinking about the crowns that find. Thank you, Gino and Andrea and all the team. The crowns that find their right place at the feet of Jesus. Adorning the feet of Jesus is where a crown finds its best place. This is just beautiful, and I can't wait till we get there. Oh, thank you, Lord. Um, We better pray. Lord, we just love you, and thank you. How awesome are you, Lord, that all glory is yours. That, that stuff that we were singing, it's true. And I pray it wouldn't just be songs that we were singing, but that it would be truth that flows out of our hearts. And uh, amen, you're worthy of it all. You're worthy of our lives. You're worthy of us gathering together to worship you and lift up your name. You're worthy of our service. You're worthy of our obedience. You're worthy of our sacrifice. You are worthy of it all. And, and Lord, I just ask by your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes to the truth today as we get into the word and that um, you would do all the things that I cannot do, that none of us can do, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring about transformation today, that you would illuminate this word and you would change lives for the glory of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen. amen. Well, before we get too deep into the word, I just want to give a really quick uh, brief update on our search for the family pastor. We're working with a company right now who's helping us find uh, the right person for that need. You know, here at Word of Grace, we believe deeply in family ministry. And we don't think that this room is the A team and the A ministry and the important stuff and the B team and the B ministry happens in the kids' wing. Uh, we believe it is just as important and in some ways more important. And so um, I just say all that to say, one, they're, they're working on compiling candidates for us. And um, by the end of this month, we'll have our, a, a batch presented to us of candidates that they believe would be a good fit for what we're looking for as a church family, what we need, and to help us continue to move forward and really establish and build a strong and thriving family ministry within our church. And so uh, would you commit, and this is just a reminder, uh, to commit to pray. We cannot do these things and and land in the right spots and find the right person if it's not by the power and leading of God. And if we're just depending on our own self and even depending on schematics and strategy and all that kind of stuff, we've got to be depending on the Lord. And so as a church family, let's be praying, continue to be praying as we're getting ready to see the first batch of candidates, hopefully the last batch of candidates that they would present to us for that role, be praying that the Lord would be preparing the right person for us, preparing the right family to dive in here and just dig in roots and get knit together in the heart with our church family. And also be praying that God would continue to stir the uh, hearts of our church family to get involved. How incredible would it be to, to love and welcome our new family pastor with support of, of them coming in and saying, hey, we've got your back. We believe in what you're doing and what you're going to do, and we've got your back. So I'd encourage you, if you're not involved right now in serving in some capacity, man, I'd encourage you, there's a great place there to start. And you might be thinking, man, that's too hard. I can't do that. And I promise you, it's not as hard as you think it is. And we have great training, great teams in place to help. So 
if uh, you're available and willing, by the grace of God, I know he can use you to make an impact in the life of kids. Amen? We are in the book of Ephesians, and last week we talked about how right believing leads to right living. And Paul spent what is three chapters for us in painting this incredible, beautiful picture of what God planned and accomplished in Christ, reconciling his creation back to himself, reconciling a people back to himself. But there's really one more angle to this right believing leads to right living concept that isn't something uh, that's just external like our view of the world or our view of God, but it's actually internal to the core of who we are and what we believe about ourselves. This statement that right believing leads to right living kind of has three tiers, if you will, that right believing, what do we believe about this world? What we believe about this world has implications on the way that we live in this world. What do we believe secondly? What do we believe about God? What we believe about God has implications on the way that we live this life. And then thirdly, what we believe about ourselves also has significant implications on the way that we live in this life, in this world. What do we believe about God? What do we believe about this world? What do we believe about ourselves? And right believing in those areas leads to right living. If you've got your Bible, go to chapter four. We're picking up where we were last week, in chapter four, we're going to start talking and uh, start reading in verse 17 right here. Paul says this, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Pause. Who is he talking to in this letter, majoritively? Do we know who he's talking to? Because he says, don't, or you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Let's Rewind really quick. Let's go back. Flip a page over to chapter 3, verse 1. And he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's talking to Gentiles. Let's flip back one more time. Another page to chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles. So, the context of people that he's talking to right now is primarily Gentiles. What's a Gentile? We've talked about it a little bit, but for those of you who might not heard, a Gentile is simply someone who's not a Jew, not born the descendant of Father Abraham. And so he's talking to Gentiles, and he says, now you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. That would be like me getting up here and saying, all right, guys, you must no longer walk like Americans. We're like, well, Wait, I, I am one. <laughs> what do you mean I'm not supposed to, you're telling me I'm not supposed to be who I am? I am an American. These readers would have been going, when they hear Paul say, you must no longer walk as Gentiles do, they would have been thinking, but Paul, we're Gentiles. This doesn't, huh? <laughs> and I think the main thing here is that this is setting up what Paul is trying to get to as a summation of this entire letter which is identity. He says, you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. And this is really highlighting the point that Paul is about to make, that if we've been saved by the grace of God, which he talked about in chapter two, it means we actually are new. We actually are different. We have been changed. 
It's not just that we've been welcomed in. You know, many, many churches rightly say, come as you are. Amen. You are welcomed as you are. Whatever stage of life you might be in, whatever level of good or bad you think you might be, whatever mess you might find yourself in, however good you think you are, however bad you think you are, no matter what stage or phase of life you are in, Jesus says, come now, come to me as you are. But because he's good and because he loves us, he does not leave us as we are. To be connected to Christ, to stand in Christ, to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God is to be changed by the Spirit of God. To know him is to love him. To love him is to be changed by him. You ever had those people that they meet that right person, they fall in love, and it's like they begin saying those things like, they're bringing things out of me I didn't know they were there. Or that person just knows me and gets me in a way where I feel like I'm different when I'm with them, like they're changing me. And if human beings can do that to one another, who are we to think that God's not going to do that when God himself, through the Holy Spirit, comes into us? It's going to change us. We're going to look different. And so Paul is saying here, it means we're going to actually be different. We're going to be new. Paul is confronting the roots, the core of their identity, who they see themselves as. To the Gentile, he's saying, you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. To us, you must no longer walk as Americans do. You must no longer walk as Wisconsinites do. You must no longer walk as whatever thing, whatever picture, whatever class, whatever ideology, whatever different thing it is that you draw identity from. He's saying, no, actually our identity now is in Christ. Who you are as a believer who has come to faith in Jesus Christ and therefore received the Holy Spirit, now is established in your identity, not in your favorite sports team. I see a few jerseys today. No shame, no problem. But that's not your identity. Your identity is not in your career and your achievements, which is interesting because that's always the initiation of small talk, right? I did it this morning already. So what do you do? We draw so much of who we are by what we do. Our identity is not in where we live. I'm a mutt. That's really easy for me. I've lived in Virginia, Florida, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, and Wisconsin. So I'm just nationally confused, I suppose. It's real easy for me to withdraw my identity, but so many of us do have our identity in where we're from. Our identity is not in our family. Parents, our identity is not in the achievements and accomplishments of our kids. There's so many different things in this world that we dump our identity into and go, that's who I am. And Paul is confronting the core of what these people think about themselves, talking to Gentiles, saying you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. Why? Because so much of what we do comes from what we believe about ourselves. So much of what you do 
comes from what you believe about ourselves. That's why this letter to the Ephesians that we've been reading for the last few weeks, and we're a little more than halfway through now, this letter to Ephesians has the phrase in Christ or its equivalent, meaning in him or in the beloved, talking about Jesus Christ. That phrase in Christ is in this letter alone 27 times. Six chapters for us, 27 times Paul says in Christ or in him or in the beloved, trying to just hit them again, jar them again over and over and over and over by saying in Christ is how you're different now. Not only in this letter to the Ephesians does he say that phrase or its equivalent 27 times, in all of of Paul's 13 letters that we have canonized as scripture, and the 13 letters that Paul wrote, he says that phrase in Christ or its equivalent, 164 times in 13 letters. 13 letters, 164 times. Paul says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Saying it enough that hopefully we go, man, he sure says that a lot. You know, as you study scripture and as you try to interpret scripture, one of the foundational principles is that you want to pay attention to repetition because the biblical authors, when they would say something over and over and over and over, it's because they were trying to highlight it and magnify it and draw importance to this one thing that they keep saying over and over and over and over. And Paul is saying this very same thing over and over and over in this letter to these Gentiles to try and help them see, listen, your identity is not in who you were, it's in who you are now in Christ. This is the same exact thing we see that he said in the letter to the Corinthians, in the second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, a very famous verse says, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Why is this so important? Because we all are very aware of who we have been. Every single one of us knows the decisions, the mistakes, the motives in our heart and in our past that have been true of who we have been. And shame and guilt comes at us regularly. You know, one of the names for Satan in scripture is the accuser of the brethren. He comes to us accusing us, lobbying guilt and shame, whereby we start learning truth about who God is and the implications of who that means we are and what that means for our lives today and the way that we live. And the accuser of the brethren comes, yeah, that may or may not be true, but remember, Remember who you are, because you've done some pretty shady stuff. Don't forget about that one time, or those ten times. Don't forget about that thing that you did. This is where Paul is saying, no, that's not who you are anymore. Let's continue reading here. Now this I say and testify to the Lord, verse 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness or their hardness of heart. 
They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Saying that's what what you used to be like. That's what the Gentiles are like. Remembering chapter 2 saying, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience following the desires and the bodies of the mind. That's who you were. And he's saying right here, that's what the Gentiles are like, darkened in their, their futile in their minds, darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance, meaning they don't know. The ignorance that's in them that is due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. I, I play the guitar. I've been playing the guitar since I was 13 years old. And... I remember when I started playing the guitar, anybody who has played the guitar or tried to play the guitar, when you begin trying to play the guitar, you go, ow, that hurts. Because our little fingers are not meant to be pressed against steel, a little string of steel for a long time, and it begins hurting. But when you begin applying yourself to that over and over and over, you begin to develop calluses to where it no longer hurts to press those strings. You're no longer sensitive to what used to hurt. And I remember in the height of my playing, I don't play as much as I used to, but back when I used to play all the time and my calluses were so thick, you could take a pen cushion and press it into my finger and I would feel nothing because of the callus. I wouldn't feel what if I pressed against your finger, you'd be like, ouch, right away. Jerk, stop pricking me with a needle. I could press into my finger. I could take my fingers and put them on a hot stove and it'd take a few seconds for me to feel it, that pain because of the calluses. And he's saying these Gentiles, because their hearts are so hard and their hearts are callous, that they no longer feel the pain from what should hurt. They no longer have sensitivity to what is right and wrong because their hearts have become so calloused and so hardened that they're ignorant in their understanding of God, they're futile in their minds, darkened in their understanding. And he's saying that is the way that the Gentiles view, the way that the Gentiles think, the way that the Gentiles live, and that's why you're not supposed to walk as the Gentiles do. That's why he said in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. He says, this is how Gentiles think. They're callous in their hearts, but that's not the way you learned Christ. Meaning if you've come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ, it ought to make your life look different. We ought not be hard-hearted. We ought to be tender-hearted. We ought not be insensitive to things that are offensive to God. We ought to be tender and sensitive to where when, not, not if, but when we sin, when we stumble, that it, that it ought to make us go, ouch. Not like me pressing a guitar where I'm like, this don't hurt, but, but I just go, ouch. That, that, that's not good. That doesn't feel right. That sin, because of who we are in Christ, not because of who we're trying to become, but because of who we are, our identity has changed this stuff doesn't belong in us anymore. I've, I've mentioned it before and I'm embarrassed to mention it again. Many of you may or may not have seen the movie The Princess Diaries. Hang my head. It was a long time ago, okay? I haven't seen it in a long time. Anne Hathaway is this nerdy, goofy girl 
who's not popular, who has quirky tendencies and habits. And one day this lady shows up on her doorstep and she's like, hi, who are you? And she's like, I think it's her grandmother, I think. Is that right? Her grandmother. And she finds out she's royalty. This girl who's nerdy and quirky and doesn't have a lot of money and is unpopular and walks hunched over and snorts and burps and farts, sorry. She does these things that are really unbecoming. Her grandmother shows up on her doorstep one day knocking on the door, and I can't remember the backstory, it doesn't matter. One day she shows up, this lady she's never met, she's like, who are you? And she's like, I'm your grandmother and you are the princess of Genovia. And she's like, huh? And then the rest of the movie is Anne Hathaway, I can't remember her character's name, but is her learning how to be or become who she actually is. She comes to this realization that she is royalty, and then she goes through all this training and development of learning how to become who she actually is. The lady she has to work with her to say, no, listen, we don't hunch over like this. We straighten our back, and we have good posture. And no, we don't burp, and we don't fart, and we don't do these things because it's unbecoming of royalty. And she teaches her how to do the proper wave and how to walk properly and how to handle herself in conversation properly. And yeah, you can laugh at my lame British accent if you want to. But she's doing all this stuff, trying to help her realize that's not who you are. And you've been living your whole life thinking that's who you are when in truth you're actually someone else and I'm gonna help you learn how to be who you really are. On December 1st, 2016, I became a father. Marley was born, and that day, whether I knew how or not, whether I read books about it or not, whether I had people teach me things or not, I became a father on December 1st, 2016. Then from that, hopefully I did some before that trying to prepare myself to be a father, and by the grace of God, I believe he's helping me but from that, that moment I became a father is a life of me still learning how to be what in an instant I became. This is so much of our life as believers. This rewiring, this reprogramming of going, okay, that's who I used to be. I used to not be a dad and I will forever now be a dad. There's things that I do differently. I remember the day that Katie, in this really clever way, she put, I got home one day from, from church. It was when I was over the youth, and I got home on a Wednesday night. It was late. I was tired. And I get home, and she's like, honey, from the hall, she, down the hallway, she said, hey, honey, I've got a surprise for you and uh, a treat for you I made, and it's in the oven. I was like, oh, how sweet. Katie made brownies for me or something like that. She knows I've been working. I was like, okay, and she said it was in the oven, and so I opened the oven, and I see a hamburger bun sitting there, and I'm like, huh? And I down the hall, I yelled, a bun? And she sticks her head out the bathroom door. <laughs> and then the realization, and the tears, shocker, of realizing I am going to be a dad. And the emotions, the joy, the elation of who I was becoming, and then the, oh, snap. I need to save more money. I've got to start doing this, and I've got to stop doing this. 
this realization of an, an identity shift. And, and not just husband Stephen or solo Stephen, but soon to be father Stephen. And then that day on December 1st, holding my daughter in my hands, crying like a baby, just looking at this wonderful gift of God that changed my view, not only of this little girl that I was holding, but my view of myself. I became a father. And then there was this process of learning how to be who I had become. This is why Paul over and over and over and over and over is saying, in Christ, you, in Christ, in him, in the beloved. Because he's trying to help us see that aha moment that I'm not who I was. And there's things in my life that might used to have been okay for me that are not okay anymore. And it's not because I'm trying to earn approval from God. It's because I have been approved. I have been welcomed. I have been accepted. I have been loved by God. And therefore, it affects the way I live. And like the princess of Genovia, it's not that I don't sin because I'm trying to uh, earn God's approval. It's that that's not for me. Because I'm in Christ. The things that might be okay for the Gentiles are not okay for me because that's not how I learned Christ. And so I'm not looking at the Gentile. I'm not looking at America. I'm not looking at Wisconsin. I'm not looking at the world to try and help me determine what is appropriate or inappropriate for me as someone who is in Christ. I'm looking at the word of God to tell me who God is, to tell me what this world is about, and therefore also to tell me who I am. The same way that at that day that I realized I was going to be a dad, the day that I held my daughter, the day that it affected the way that I viewed my budget, the way that I viewed my schedule, the way that I viewed boys <laughs> when I found out I was going to have daughters, <laughs> all that stuff changed. And the same ought to be true of us as Christians. Verse twenty. Uh, in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. He's saying this is who you used to be and is corrupt through deceitful desires. He's saying put that stuff off. That's not who you are anymore. And verse 23 says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's interesting. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? What's the famous verse from Romans 12? Where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is your reasonable worship, meaning present your life to God as a sacrifice of worship, a living sacrifice. And then he goes on in verse two to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? Yeah, by the renewing of your mind. We're transformed. That, that phrase, renewing of your mind, comes from the Greek term metanoia. Metanoia, change of mind. That we're to be transformed by the way we think. Changing the way that we think. Change the way that we see this world. Change the way the thoughts and ideas we have about God. Change the thoughts and ideas we have about ourselves. From where? From Scripture. Letting the Word of God confront our views about this world, about God, and about ourselves. 
that we no longer see ourselves as Gentiles or as Americans or as even our last name or whatever different things we draw our identity from, but we step back and we go, who I am is found in Christ. Therefore, what I participate in, what I abstain from, who I associate with, Everything I do is affected by the fact that my identity is found as someone who belongs to Christ. I don't eat from the dumpster because I don't have to. My needs are met. I don't do certain things because that's not who I am. So don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, picking up in verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what we need to be doing is going, okay, if this is who I am, what in my life does not fit who I now am? Not who I'm trying to become, because I have, the moment you are in Christ, the moment you became a child of God, you are in Christ. You belong to God. You are a child of the King. And so, the things in my life that are not reflective of that, I am to put off, is what Paul is saying. And then he says, and we are to put on If you did word studies here, you'd find he's talking about the similarities of like putting on clothes. We are to put on Christ, meaning we're choosing to put on Christ, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And we can see from 2 Corinthians 3 that the more that we behold God, the more we are transformed into his image from glory to glory, the more we look at God, the more we look at Jesus, the more that we behold him, the more we are changed to be like him. And so many times we try and white knuckle this stuff and use our willpower to go, man, I know that's how I'm supposed to live. And so come on, Stephen, let's do it. Let's hike up our bootstraps. Let's white knuckle this thing. And by golly, I'm going to do it. And really that transformation comes by looking at him, beholding him, gazing upon him, considering those things that we were talking about earlier, about the elders throwing their crowns at the feet of Jesus and beholding his glory and his splendor. And that stuff changes us created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, the world wants to give us Disney theology. The world wants to tell us, hey, as long as you stay true to yourself, be true to you and who you are, and it'll all work out. In the end, your parents will understand what they didn't understand before when you ran away to fight the Huns. Or when you disobeyed and ran away to sail out to the sea and find Maui. Or when you ran away and all you had to do was be true to yourself. And in the end, everyone realized, oh man, I wasn't seeing them for who they truly were. And now that they've been true to their self, I can step back and see they saved the whole world. So yay. Disney theology is be true to you, to yourself, and it'll all work out in the end. And everyone will someday see that you were right and will celebrate who you are. Biblical theology is deny yourself. Repent of your sin. 
Put off your old self and put on Christ. It's not just step back, ask yourself, who am I and what do I feel? What makes me feel right and who makes me feel like I am? What makes me feel like I'm my true self? What ideology, what view of myself? This is the challenge today of many popular sins because there are certain sins that we have been taught, well, that's who you are. And so many times, I think personality tests can be really helpful in a lot of ways. But I think they can also be damning in some ways because we'll sit here and go, Oh yeah, that's me. That's right. This personality test really just nailed me. That's who I am. All right, guys, I I guess this is just the way I think, so learn how to deal with it. It's who I am. As if Christ cannot conquer our fallenness. As if the Holy Spirit cannot change who we are. As if the grace of God is not seen in picking up our weakness and showing glory to God and that he's able to do in us what we cannot do in ourselves and we just go, oh, this is who I am. He's saying we're to deny ourselves, repent of our sin, put off our old self and put on Christ. And so in a day and an age where it's so popular to hear just be true to yourself, well, let's be true to what the Bible says about ourselves. And Ephesians is a really great book to help us do that, where it helps us see from chapter two that there's two people. There is those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, futile in their minds, ignorant of the knowledge of God, and there are those who are in Christ. And when you're over in this category, futile in your mind, ignorant in the knowledge of God, dead in sin, following the desires of the body and the mind, following your passions of your flesh. Well, of course, we're going to see what we see in our world today. Everybody following their own compass. Everybody going with what they feel is right. And let me just stand here and say, your feelings will lie to you all the time. How many people have you had feelings for in your life? that you didn't end up married to, didn't end up with in the long haul. Those are the moments, I have feelings for you. Well, that's cute. And that can be genuine and sincere and can be wonderful and can lead to godly covenant. But feelings change, right? And even how many times have we got into marriage and it's honeymoon and it's wonderful and then honeymoon ends and feelings change. Your feelings will lie to you all the time. And if your feelings are your arrow, or your compass that helps you determine where you go in life and what you think about yourself rather than the word of God, you're gonna be tossed to and fro by every feeling, by every ideology, by every external influence, by popular voices in this world, by what society is telling you. This is why we must know from the word of God who God is, what this world is like, and who we are in Christ. Amen? Why do we need to take off our old self? Well, because you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That's why. We don't want to be futile in our minds, darkened in their understanding. We don't want to be darkened in our understanding. We want to walk in the light, alienated from the life of God because they're ignorant of the truth. We don't want to be alienated by our ignorance of God, hardened in their heart, calloused. We don't want to be that, no longer sensitive to right and wrong, Put off your old self, your former manner of life, corrupt through deceitful desires, and we put on Christ. We put on the new self. 
And this is seen in every single area of our lives. We were singing, you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. Not you're worthy of some. Not you're worthy of what's convenient for me. Not you're worthy of what I feel like. He's worthy of it all. Jesus Christ is worthy of everything. Continuing on in verse 25, he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, therefore, in light of that stuff, since you're in Christ, you're a new creation, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one body. So therefore, let's, let's not speak deceit, let's not speak falsehood, but let's speak the truth. We are one in Christ Jesus, for we are members of one another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What we can see right here is there is anger that leads to sin and there is anger that does not lead to sin. There is a godly anger and there is an ungodly anger. When we see unrighteousness, when we see injustice, when we see corruption, when we see wrongdoing, it ought to give us righteous anger. But... There is an anger that leads to sin. And that's where Paul is saying, be, be angry and do not sin. We ought to evaluate when our emotions are elevated and when we're angry. Uh, am I in righteous anger right now? And if so, what is a righteous way to act on this? What am I to do with this? Or am I in unrighteous anger? Because Jesus one time said, if you're angry at your brother without a cause, you're guilty of murder in your heart. Ouch. Wow. That's extreme, Jesus. But Jesus is getting down to the hard issues here. So he's saying, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Let's resolve what we're angry about each day. This is something that helps us go, God is God and we are not. If we're righteously angry, remember how many times scripture said, do not seek out vengeance for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so let's make sure that at the end of the day, we just go, okay, you know what? I got to set that stuff aside. I got to trust that God is sovereign. I got to trust him with these things. Uh, pray and cast those things before him. Ask myself if I need to do something about whatever it was and humble ourselves to evaluate ourselves on, am I in righteous anger right now or unrighteous anger? Be angry and do not sin and don't let the sun go down on your wrath. He goes on uh, to say in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is real simple, black and white, practical stuff we're getting to here. Hey, if you can work, work. It's biblical. It gives glory and honor to God. He's saying, don't let the thief steal anymore. Get up off the derriere and do something. Apply yourself to earn wages. But notice here, why? Because we think, well, I need to have a job and I need to work so I can take care of myself. And although that's true, he highlights something else. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He's saying, Man, yeah, of course, work and take care of yourself, but he's saying, do honest work with your hands that you may have something that you may, meaning for the purpose of being able to take care of and help people when they're in need. There's a change of perspective there on why we work, why we do what we do. 
Going on in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as, it's, as, it, oh, sorry, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. That word corrupt there um, is from the Greek word sapros, meaning bad or corrupt. This is the exact same word that was used multiple times in the gospels where Jesus is talking about fruit, where he says, a good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree produces bad fruit, sapros, the same bad here, meaning corrupt and rotten, saying, again, remembering, if you're in Christ, you're a different, you're a new creation, and so from that new creation in Christ, you ought to be bearing good fruit, and if you are in Christ, it also ought to come out in your speech, in a way that uplifts people. And encourages people rather than casting them down or saying corrupt and perverted or dirty things, using our language for things that are unbecoming of the Lord. He's saying, let no corrupt or rotten or bad speech come out, but that which is uplifting. And listen, guys, I'll just be honest. This is even difficult for me at times. I can have a very sarcastic sense of humor, which needs to be laid to the cross. I find it funny. And sometimes I have hurt people that I love and care about. Two weeks ago, I made a joke with Gino, who's one of my very best friends in this world, and I, I, I made a joke trying to get a laugh, and it was wounding to him. And as soon as I did it, I, was, I, I felt grieved. I was like, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that, and I had to repent. I had to ask him to forgive me. I had, this is not right. This is not okay. For all of us, we need to go, is my mouth ministering from the, my position in Christ? Out of the goodness of God in me is what ought to flow out of my mouth. Remember that what's bad comes out of a man. What's good comes out of. And so good fruit comes from a good tree. Ultimately, we should use our words to build up and not to tear down. We should use our words to build up and not to tear down. Let's use our words to intentionally minister grace, to encourage, to exhort, to edify, to build up. And that's something that I have to repent of when I, when I step out of that. He goes on here in verse 30 to say, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Listen, we have been given the incomprehensible as this is not really understandable in our minds. We cannot grasp this. We have been given the incomprehensible, priceless gift of the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit. We ought to do all we can not to grieve him. All that we can. Our speech, our behavior, what we view, what we listen to. We have to go, man, I do not want to grieve the spirit of God in me the same way that I felt terrible about potentially wounding my friend and I was grieved about what I said to him in jest and in a joke. I, 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 I thought for a moment, oh man, that was damaging to our relationship and he was gracious and forgave me. But I, the, the concern I had for wounding or grieving my friend, how much more? the Holy Spirit of God inside of us. We ought to be concerned to make sure that we're not grieving the Holy Spirit of God. So when we sin, like I sinned against my brother and go, oh, that was not okay. 
I need to repent and ask for forgiveness. When we sin in our lives, knowing the Holy Spirit is in us, we ought to go, oh, that's, that's not okay. I need to repent and not grieve the Holy Spirit of God who is within me, by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption, that, 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 that signet seal. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. All, and along with all malice. Guys, listen, bitterness is poison. Bitterness is poison. Unforgiveness is poison. I've heard it said before that holding bitterness or unforgiveness towards someone is like drinking poison and expecting them to get sick. That when we hold bitterness against others or unforgiveness against others, it only works in corrupting us. How many times you've talked to somebody or somebody comes up to you and asks for forgiveness and, you're like, and they're like, I didn't even know that I did anything wrong. And you're sitting there all bitter, all upset, and they had no idea. So let's not be the people who just let frustration and estrangement between us boil and simmer with this bitterness, but let's address it. Let's get to it. Let's get it out of the way. Let all bitterness and wrath be put away from us. And he goes on, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. I love this. As God in Christ forgave you. Is there anyone in your life that uh, you're withholding forgiveness from? He says, we're forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What we like to do in our kind of mock Christian view of forgiveness is to say, well, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Man, I'm really thankful Jesus doesn't do that. Aren't you? Jesus said, as far as the east is from the west, our sins are to be thrown into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered again. What grace could we give to one another to be hurt, to be offended, to be wounded, and to go, you know what? Jesus has forgiven me of so much, and he threw my sins, my wrongdoings into the sea of forgetfulness. I can do the same for you. As God in Christ, meaning the same way that God forgave us, we are to forgive one another. And I can't help but remember Jesus on the cross, the ultimate injustice, the perfect man being crucified for the sins of the world, looks down at the soldiers who are mocking him. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we also like to go, you know what? I'll forgive them, but first they got to come to me and they got to. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And what if when someone wronged us or offended us, instead of going, yeah, I'll forgive them, but first, they got to acknowledge and they got to do this. And they should, of course. But what if before they even came to us, we went, I've been forgiven of much. Jesus forgave the soldiers who were mocking them, and they never asked forgiveness as far as we saw in Scripture. And so I'm just going to choose to forgive the person whether they ask for it or not. I'm not going to carry that burden around I'm not going to carry that bitterness around. I'm not going to carry that unforgiveness around, separating me from a brother or sister in Christ. I'm going to, as God forgave me 
in Christ Jesus, forgive them. Because who are we to withhold from others what has been freely given to us? I'm gonna say that one more time. Who are we to withhold from others what has been freely given to us? The grace of Jesus Christ. And shame on us if we go, no, you can't have that. So what? Now what? We no longer have to live wishing, wishing we were different, wishing we were loved, wishing we could be forgiven, wishing God was pleased with us, wishing we were good enough. In Christ, we are loved, we are accepted, we are forgiven, we are rejoiced over, we are celebrated, and we are changed. And if your life looks no different now than it did before Christ, I'd like you to evaluate if you're truly in Christ. If your life does not look different, I'd like you to do some evaluation. Let's stop believing the enemy's lies about who we are and let's walk in the light of the truth, the truth of who God is and the truth of who we are in Christ. So today, let's do some evaluation. If our life does not look like we have put on Christ, we have to say, have I? Have I truly believed? Have I truly repented? Have I truly been changed by the Holy Spirit of God? Maybe I've convinced myself because I go to church and because I read the Bible or whatever, maybe I've convinced myself I am. Have we truly put on Christ? And if you have, then stop letting guilt and shame from the enemy condemn you Walk in the light, walk in righteousness, put on Christ, walk in the spirit. Preach the truth to yourself daily of who you are in Christ. Saying, I'm forgiven. When I feel condemned about my past, I say, no, I'm forgiven in Christ Jesus. I'm a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, all has become new. God looks at me as a new person, not who I was 